0: Hello, and welcome to Marketing to Complex Industries, presented by Godfrey, a B2B marketing agency for industries like yours. On each episode, we feature conversations about the latest challenges, strategies, and technologies for B2B marketers. I'm your host, Scott Trova, VP of Creative at Godfrey, and today it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Carla Johnson to the podcast. Carla has lived, worked, and studied on five continents. She's worked with numerous Fortune 500 brands and just authored her 10th book, Rethink Innovation, which is currently available for pre-order. So we're very excited today to talk to Carla about innovation and all things marketing. Carla, welcome to Marketing to Complex Industries.
1: Thanks, Scott. I'm delighted to be here. You know, you have all of some of my favorite things. You've got B two B marketing. You've got complex industries, and of course, now today innovation.
0: Wonderful. Uh, you know, with a book with a title like uh, like rethink innovation um, that already sounds like kind of a kind of a big promise. It sounds like a tall order. But but you you upped the ante and have a goal. You have a very special, very very measurable, numeric goal. Can you tell me about that?
1: Absolutely. It's my goal to teach 1 million people how to become innovative thinkers by the year 2025. And it was, it was interesting how this popped into my head one day, because one of the things that I've noticed, and I think particularly with B2B marketers and the industries that we're in and the kind of companies that we work with, and I know you've heard this 100 times, Scott, is people say, I'm not that creative. I'm just, you know, I'm not that innovative. We don't want to rock the boat. And, you know, let's just, we know what we did last year worked, So we're just going to do it again and maybe dress it up and make it look a little different. But we just, I don't know what to do. It's too risky. You know, I, there's, we don't have a kind of budget, you know, we're not that kind of company and all these excuses. But I believe all we need for people to become more innovative thinkers is just to learn how. And I think there's so much pressure and I think there's this um, stereotype of innovation and what it is and that it is complex and, and expensive and time consuming and laborious. And I think that takes a lot of the, that stereotype takes a lot of the joy out of what I've seen from people who do understand how innovation can be so simple and that you can use it for anything that you do.
0: I think that's, that's really interesting. So, uh, you know, too often, I, I mean, in, in the book, you mentioned people overthinking things, uh, you know, thinking a little bit too much about it. And I, I think that there is, uh, there's an undercurrent of fear that goes into that. We tend to overthink things because we don't want to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit about how you've, uh, you know gone about sort of tackling that and hitting that head on.
1: Well, I think one of the reasons that people have fear and particularly, Um, This fear associated with the risk of trying something new, Um, innovation. Innovation is all about finding new opportunities, solving problems that haven't been solved in the same way before. And I think the reason that people have so much fear is the unknown of what's on the other side. What if we come up with an idea to try something and it doesn't work and it fails and I lose my job and I lose my house and, you know, I end up destitute in the streets. You know, our mind is amazing at coming up with all those negative scenarios, but we need to train it to think of, wait a minute, it doesn't have to go that way. All I need to do is look for an example of when it did work out really well, understand the details of why it worked out really well. and and transplant, relate those characteristics into the work that I do. And right there, I have a little bit of a track record that can show me what to do that minimizes the risk of a new idea that I'm testing. And I think, especially as marketers, one of the things that we forget is that we test a lot. You know, we test campaigns, we test, you know, A, B formulas. We do a lot of testing, but we don't think about that approach when it comes to ideas and being a little bit more innovative. And I think if we look at that mindset that we have of looking for familiarity in the ideas that we bring to the table and adopting that idea of testing things and seeing what works and what doesn't, you know, on on a little bitty scale rather than this huge, grandiose, really risky scale, I think that does a lot to start to address the risk and the fear that people have around new ideas.
0: Well, I definitely want to talk more about that and uh, and and where uh, clarity, communication, and that sort of thing, um, you know, come into play. But when I think about risk and I think about that level of bravery and that kind of thing, um, I actually want to ask you you know, a little bit more of a personal question because you have gone and lived abroad uh, at times for severely extended stays in other countries it would seem to me that there's there's something of a, of a sense of, of bravery and, uh, and sort of a, a commitment to, you know, come what may, this is what we're going to do, that would, would come into that. Can you tell me about those experiences a little bit?
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll start out with the first one, because um, even though it was before we had kids and it was just my husband and I, um, we were earlier in our careers, it was 1998, you know, you still have risk. And there's Ooh. still this sense of, well, you know what do I do with my house? What do I do with my car? What do I do with my stuff? What if I lose my stuff? But I think one of the greatest gifts that I learned out of that first year of living abroad we went to South America for a year is the freedom that comes from not having anything to worry about you know we we literally lived with everything on our back and we it at one point and it was twenty seven pounds so you think about living for a year with everything you need on your back and it only weighs 27 pounds. Now this was pre-cell phone, pre-laptops that were, you know, really mobile pre-tablets and things like that, Mm -hmm. but there were internet cafes. So we, we could communicate and, you know, ways to, to keep in touch, but it was the beauty of that freedom of understanding really how little we need to live on a day-to-day basis and, and how little we need to be happy. And I think our budget for that year was something crazy like $40 a day. You know, so when mm-hmm. you think about uh living the high life and traveling, that certainly wasn't wasn't dust. I mean, there's there's hotels, there's nice hotels, there's hotels, there's hostels, and then there was where we stayed, you know, where we could afford to to go for that long. Mm-hmm. And now we did choose a continent that was very inexpensive to travel in. So so I'll say that. But I think I think part of that gift of understanding how little you really need is to understand with clarity, to your point, about what matters most in what you do in life. And and I would say that that trip and that experience came at a time in my adulthood when I realized I didn't want a big house with a lot of stuff and a lot of cars. It was life was just a lot simpler. And I had clarity about what mattered to me most because I lived with 27 pounds of stuff for a year. Now, yeah. It's, it's an approach that we've had with our kids. I mean, with kids come stuff, right? You still need high chairs, you need, you know, cribs and you, you need toys and things like that. But I think that was the nice thing about then, you know, fast forwarding to 2018, when we decided to take our three high school kids and live in Spain for a year, is that it was another opportunity. Now, they I mean, as high schoolers, they're not big stuff people either. So it was easier and they've traveled a lot. We've traveled a lot with them and they had to carry everything that they had. But again, it's that idea of you may go without it for a year. And when we come back, let's see what really mattered and and what was important. And it's funny how you can travel like that. And a lot of things that you have around you every single day don't really have the meaning that you thought they might And so, when you have all of this, like um, fringe, unnecessary things that aren't necessary, scraped away from life, you really have room and space, you know, mentally and physically, to figure out what does matter and and what you do want to fill that space with, or you know, maybe you leave some space empty.
0: Uh, You know, I'm going to say, I I think that that the the South America trip that you're talking about, uh, you know, early on, early in your adulthood. Uh, that's almost the, the safer bet than taking three high school age kids and i as the father of three myself i know you're dealing probably with three very distinct personalities there um that that takes guts we're gonna go to spain for a year and everybody's gonna enjoy it right' we're gonna, <laughs> we're, gonna, we're, gonna we're gonna commit as a family like that's that takes leadership it takes some guts it takes some risk uh, but i would imagine that the payoff is really there as well
1: you know, it it really has been there. It has been worth it. And I mean, who could have ever known what we were going to come back to and, you know, the complete lack of travel now that we've yeah. had this last year. And I think one of the wonderful things, I mean, we've always been a close family to start with, but when you spend all of your time with your teenagers in a foreign country, in a country that speaks a different language, it's a different kind of closeness. And you get to know people um really well in ways that I think if we would have stayed home and had that year as typical American family and American teenagers, we wouldn't have gotten to know each other like that in that way. And I think that's I mean, I, I give our kids a ton of credit because I can imagine a lot of teenagers who would have thrown fits and it could have been a miserable year, you know, going away with three high school kids. But they saw it really for the amazing experience that it was and they they did really embrace it now it doesn't mean they didn't miss their friends it doesn't mean that they were you know it wasn't hard to adapt and get used to a different kind of schooling and and everything like that but it did give them a different perspective on what's possible if you just start to ask what if you know what if we What if we did start to look at living abroad? What if we did start to look at, you know, what does it take? You know, what if we start to look at the details of a visa? What if we start to look at, you know, how school could think, could look differently? You know, it really was our year of rethinking how we looked at the world, how we looked at our work, our family dynamics, how we looked at school. And I think that it's, it is one of those lessons for all of us at all of our respective ages that will be just a tremendously impactful thing that matters to us for the rest of our lives.
0: I, you know, it, it's interesting you, uh, when you talk about that, what if kind of thinking um, I think that is, you know, anything that I've ever done uh, you know, creatively for any of the brands that I've personally worked with um, it's, it's been some variation of, of what if of that game of, of, Thinking broadly, uh, what if we tried this? What if we what if we did that? The more the more broadly you can think about that, I feel like the the better and more innovative the ideas are. Um, so I, w- I would imagine that that those experiences do feed into your ability to write a book like Rethink Innovation. Um, tell me about uh, about the process for that and how what if kind of plays a, a role. in You know.
1: In I'd like to say that the process was succinct uh start to finish in a year it was clear and and all of those things but it would be an outright lie <laughs> and it, it it was a long process for me it took took me about 5 years and in fact the first speech I gave about the idea that turned into the process for the for this book was January of 2016 and wow. I gave it at a at a B2B conference in New York City and that was my, what I like to do is I test ideas in speeches, I test them in blog posts and you know, podcasts and, and different things to see what the response was. And the person who spoke right after me was Tony Clayton Hine and at the time she was the CMO of Xerox. And she got on stage and she said, I feel like Carla Johnson has been a fly on the wall in of my office for the last six months because she absolutely hit on what I see as, as a tremendous you know, challenge that we have. And for me, I have incredible respect for Tony, and it couldn't have been any bigger endorsement for the concept that turned into rethink innovation than what it was. And so it's it was a series of what ifs and tests and and you know adjust this meandering path that turned into the book that that um, will release at the end of June this year. And I think it was also an, an amazing experience for me as a writer. So there, my first book was published 20 years ago this year in um, 2001, and it was actually my master's thesis for my um, degree in history. And that was similar to this book in that it was all my idea. It was all my research. I, I had to do all of everything that went into it to prove an idea that I believed was valid but the difference with this one is that it took a, a lot more research and it wasn't just about looking at what had been done in the past like you do with a, with a history thesis, but talking about what the future could look like and, and actually rethinking how we imagine Innovation and talking about, you know, what if it wasn't just relegated to this small group of people, you know, an innovation group, a product design group, something like that? What if everybody understood what it meant? What if we had such clarity about innovation and what it meant? What if everybody got involved? What if everybody understood a process and there wasn't fear and there wasn't this, you know, looming sense of risk when it comes to a new idea? What if, you know, what if companies? were more open to ideas what would that look like and I think from the what if it transitioned into the next stage of well let's pretend let's mm-hmm. pretend that is the case now now how do you see it playing out you know let's pretend you are uh, an executive who wants to build a, a culture of original thinkers how do you actually do that and so it was very much a, a learning experience for me about one the story of innovation but the story of how we perceive it, and how our own identity as innovators or, or not innovators really has such an incredible impact on our bravery in stepping forward or, or raising our hand with a new idea, something that simple, a new idea.
0: I like the fact that you're touching on identity because I, I think that the way that we see ourselves and the way that we uh, the things that we tell ourselves on a, on a regular basis, um ha- is probably the most tremendous contributor to whether or not we're going to be taking those risks i mean if i if i feel like you know what i'm a little bit of a rebel i'm a little bit of a risk taker um i'm going to i'm going to going to bring these ideas forward and and if they fall on deaf ears that's okay because i know that i've got something to say if if you're taking that perspective versus uh, on the other the other side of that would be somebody with imposter syndrome, which is all too common. Something a lot of us deal with. Um, that person's going to be likely to keep those ideas to themselves, and they're not going to be as as likely to take those risks. So it would seem to me that that's really where it starts. Kind of like uh, um, kind of like fitness really begins in the kitchen. It's like you know what you're feeding yourself, right? Um, I would think that that at the same time you know with uh, with your creativity, it really depends on what you're feeding your own. Uh, sort of emotional and, and mental self.
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. And so, if you look at companies that have a traditional, like R and D group or an innovation group, people who are specifically tapped with that responsibility and that accepted identity, and you go into another department or group or a person in that in that company, and you ask them, you know. Think of different ways that we could do this more innovatively. They're like, uh, you know, that's not my job. That's what that group over there does. And I've had heads of innovation groups say to me, you know, thank you for like opening the gates and having this be something that everybody should care about because our group can only do so much innovation. And and it's not about solving every single problem and jumping on every opportunity in the entire company because- like, they, they don't have that kind of bandwidth. They don't have that kind of staffing. And the other thing that you hear from these people is, you know, I, I'm not smart enough to be an innovator because there's this perception you have to be a PhD, you know, and in, in these complex B2B industries, a PhD engineer, a PhD data analyst, or you have to be a design thinker, or you have to be, you know, fill in the blank with something that makes you an official innovator. And they're like, mm. I'm I'm not smart enough to innovate. And the truth is, you know, innovation at its root is just about connecting the dots. And that's one of Steve Jobs' most famous quotes is about, you know, you you can't see it by looking forward, but you can see it from back, you know, looking back, it's about connecting the dots. And people say, you know, just connect the dots, you know, go forth and innovate. And, And that was something I read an interview with an executive about the other day is that he was so frustrated because he couldn't get his employees to innovate. But the issue was He's one of those natural dot connectors and not everybody is, or not uh-huh. everybody remembers how to do it. Like we did as kids because we were, we are that way as kids. And so it's, it's a reminder of what it looks like and and how to do it. And, and really it's something that everybody in the organization needs to own, not just this little handful of people.
0: That's the part of it that I love because um, well, first off it, it brings uh, it brings the message that you've got and sort of the methodology that, that you've got here to a much wider audience, um, you know, because it's it's sort of got this uh, this sidecar of uh, yeah you can don't tell me you can, um, you know the, the the research is on my side you can be innovative, um, you know but but also you mentioned uh, you mentioned how we all do it as kids and I remember seeing a TED talk with uh, an education expert Sir Ken Robinson talking about uh, convergent versus divergent thinking. And that really captured my attention when he said that um, the one group of people that tests 98% uh, at the genius level for divergent thinking, which is that really open, very creative thinking, that, that really open mindset, is five year olds. And that, and that five year olds naturally do this. And so if you've ever been five years old, which anybody listening to this has been at least once, um, <laughs> It means that you were quite likely a genius at this innovative kind of thinking. And as we grow, we sort of learn to censor ourselves. We sort of learn to, to uh, you know, I love, I love thinking that this is something that we're all capable of doing. And it's really about reducing the, the roadblocks that we put in place for ourselves more so than trying to go out and, and grab something that we've never possessed.
1: Yeah, and it's, um, that's one of the most incredible TED Talks, the the one you talked about from Sir Ken Robinson. And I think one of the things that happens in, in corporate environments is we forget the divergent thinking and we focus so much on the convergent thinking because we want to find that answer and that one right answer and we're just drive, 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 drive. And the statistics that he was referring to is, um, is some research that was done in the late 1960s by a gentleman named George Land. And George was a systems engineer who saw this need for greater creativity in business. So he started a company, and and that's what they did, is study creativity and help organizations with creativity and and divergent thinking and, and to become more innovative thinkers. And along the way, one of the directors at NASA came to him and said, you know, we have, I know we have incredibly creative engineers. I just don't know which ones they are. Can you create an assessment that Mm -hmm. helps us identify those most creative thinkers? And he said, absolutely. And he did it. And NASA was happy. And then he said to himself, I'm sure over coffee one morning, how did we get to the point where, where as kids, we can pick up a fork and it's, you know, a, a dragon's talon, or you have a spare piece of fabric and it's a cape and you're a superhero. How do you go from being creative in everything that you do to being a person that no one can recognize as a creative thinker. So he adjusted his assessment and started out with this group of 1,600 five-year-olds. And you're right, 98% of them tested at the genius level of creativity. And so his his question was, well, where do we lose this? And then so we studied them again when they were 10, and that 98% had dropped to 30%. By the time they were 15, it was down to 12%. And I think most... Most truly heartbreaking is that when he looked at the results from, he had surveyed over a million adults and they tested at 2% genius level. And so what we see there is one that there comes a time when that idea of how you think like a kid and the playfulness and the, the idea of possibilities and opportunities is taught and expected out of you. Now, I'm not saying we should have corporate environments where everybody acts like a five year old because there is that transition that you have to go through the immaturity of a five year old, you know, to the maturity of a 50 year old. But there are so many characteristics of how we think naturally as kids that's taught out of us in education and then reinforced with conformity in the corporate environment. And I know um, when you look at kids and sometimes the ones who are the most brilliant are labeled as troublemakers because they can see all Mm -hmm. of these opportunities and having to conform is really hard for them. And so, you know, they do, they end up maybe flunking out of school or dropping out of school or just getting so disgusted. And I think it's this huge amount of innovative brain power that we as a country are, are losing because we're trying to make everybody conform like a little factory. And then you pop out a graduate that goes to university and gets an MBA and you think this way. And then, you know, you come into the corporate environment, whether you're a marketer, or a finance person or a IT person or heaven forbid, an innovator. And this is the way you innovate. And I think that's the great lost opportunity. It's one of the reasons I um, did the research into the six different kinds of archetypes and how they innovate. Because I know you and I may be similar because you're a creative director and I tend to be very, very right brained but that's very different from my brother who's a PhD engineer. Now, does it mean he's more innovative than I am or vice versa? Absolutely not. It just means how we approach the process comes from different dynamics. And both of them are very valid and very necessary, especially when we start to look at teams of innovators. But we have to understand and, and open our own definition of what innovation is to rethink innovation, you know, what it looks like, who's involved in, and what those people look like.
0: Well, I think it's interesting. Once, once we understand that and once we understand that everybody, um, you know, possesses this potential still, that it's in there, that, that pilot light is still lit, right? And we, and we really just need to, to learn how to kind of turn the burner on. Uh, so to speak um, i I think that's really where where your book uh, picks up and it, and it's about um, not so much about here's how to get creative, here's how to get innovative, but I almost felt like it's here's how to build a greenhouse where innovation can grow right it's 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 really plans to to uh, you know, create a place where that magic can happen and um, I'd, I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about that because um, it it's it's simple to say, like, there's, you know, a five-step process to it, but it really is about creating space, uh, it I, is. I, think, and I think, more so.
1: Yeah, and it's one thing to have the process to understand how to consistently come up with these great ideas, but it's another to put it into practice in mm-hmm. your everyday life. You know, it's it's one thing to, you talked about fitness begins and then in the kitchen, it's one thing to know what to do in the kitchen, it's another thing to actually do it, or in the gym, yeah or wherever else. And so that's one of the things that I wanted people to understand is that if we're looking to create these ecosystems of people who are truly prolific innovators, who are able to find these opportunities and make something happen with it that ha- that fits an objective of an organization. I don't wanna give the impression that I believe when I say everybody sh- that innovation is everybody's job, that it's you know a big building full of cats running around and it's all crazy. It's actually very systematic and, and very focused. So for the left-brain people listening, don't freak out. <laughs> like It's not total chaos. But I think that's one of the most important things is that if we are looking at how do we create innovative organizations and, and create an entire ecosystem of original thinkers, if we're going to do it at the big level, we have to reverse engineer it down to the individual level. And so we have to be able to recognize that it does take everybody on an individual to understand like how do you come up with the idea that addresses a specific objective that matters to the business, to your team, to, you know, whatever the the situation is. It can be something just as simple as how do we make our next Zoom team meeting more interesting? You know, so that we can get people to show up on time to turn their cameras on, to actually speak up, you know, to be engaged so that we can get through our agenda faster and people leave it, you know, feeling like they've accomplished more. It's that, like it can work for something that simple. It can also work for things like we need a new uh, customer experience portal that our customers will actually use or something like that. But it's that process. And so in order to create that environment, that greenhouse, like you talk about The the main thing that organizations have to start with is their own brand purpose. Why are they in business to start with? Because there's all sorts of research that shows when an entire company and employee base understands the reason that the company is in business, the difference that they're making in the lives of their customers, innovation skyrockets. And it's back to Hmm. one of your earlier comments about just basic clarity in communication. So when you have that as your North Star for any organization, that's the fundamental foundational level of clarity in communication. Now, the next level is what values do we need to have in place to make sure that innovation takes place in in our culture like this? And are we willing to hire, fire, reward and reprimand based on those values. Because unless you consistently reinforce the behavior that's represented by those values that makes innovation happen, then it's just another like nice poster slapped up on the wall in a in a conference room that people walk by and don't really pay attention to. So the organizations that really do care about innovation and, and innovative thinking and making it something that Everybody participates in and has accountability for. They understand those two very, very first fundamental things.
0: I would think that you know from the from the standpoint of those core values, um, I would I would think that that could potentially be hard. Like I, it it strikes me that you don't ever really own those. You you rent them and you kind of pay the rent every day, um, right? Because you have to you have to maintain. And you have to you have to constantly be in pursuit of them. Um, that in and of itself feels like a lot of work, um, worth it. But you know, how do you how do you engage uh, you know a company of hundreds of people to do something like that?
1: You know, and it's it's an interesting comment because I think sometimes what happens is that. It's easy to miss the translation of how we interact with people as a person versus how we do that in mass as an organization. So when you think about, Mm -hmm. you know, brand purpose, is it easy to come up with? Not necessarily, but to your point, is it worth it? Absolutely. And you think about the people in your life who are like magnetic and it's because whatever it is about them, you know what they stand for. And then you think about Mm -hmm. maybe this other person or group of people that you're like, they're so irritating and I just want to avoid them. And it's because they're like, hey, Scott, you like biking? I like biking too. Come on, let's go biking. Oh, like you'd rather go cook now? Okay, I I like to cook too. You know, I just got this new cookbook. Let's get together and cook. You know, brands behave that same way. And people are just like magnetically attracted to the first and just you know, repelled and repulsed by the second. Just like people, the same thing happens to a brand. And so when you look at not having the clarity of a brand purpose and you're going out and saying, we need to figure out what customers want so we can be that, it's no different than you as a person mm-hmm. saying, I need to figure out what all my neighbors like and then I'm gonna be that person. It sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds ridiculous. It sounds hokey. Totally sounds like the last person you're going to invite to the you know neighborhood picnic. And it's yeah. the same dynamics. You have to understand as a brand who you are first, because that's your first filter for both your customers and your employees. So once you understand that, you know, what your purpose is, and then you understand the core values that need to support that, it actually helps increase employee retention. It helps, um, people, uh, companies hire more qualified, um, employees that fit the culture of the organization. It helps with, um, getting higher quality candidates and things like that, because this company is very clear. This is who I am. And these are the values that I believe in that make this person or company true. And you can't have a company that says it professes one thing but doesn't have the values in place to support it. And it's even more important the larger the organization because you're you're looking at these companies that are 10,000, 50,000, 100,000. Some of them are, are global organizations. If you're going to behave, act, think, and innovate as one you know, type of organization or organism organism, then you have to be able to understand the thinking that goes behind everything that you do. You know, why do you do it as a person? Why do you do it as a, as an organization? And, and what's my individual little role in it? Um, one of the stories I like to tell is of Park Mobile and their focus on innovation for everybody in their company. And they, they close their offices for a week, twice a year. And that's the focus for everybody is innovation. And so there's this woman who worked in finance You know, she didn't have an innovation background. She didn't have the, you know, she wasn't a software engineer. She wasn't a lot of these things that people think of as qualifications for being innovative. But she did have a process she had to do every single month that took her and her team 40 manual hours to do it. That was really sucking the life out of them. And so she taught herself a programming language and she automated that process. And it now takes 20 minutes a month instead of 40 hours a month. And so those are the kind of things that matters. But the reason she was able to do it is because Park Mobile is very clear about their purpose. They have the values in place to support it, and then they gave people space to actually innovate.
0: So it's it's um, it's really about that level of consistency, and uh, and and I do think that is what brands are are built on. You when you when you think about a brand as a person, and you think about those behaviors in an individual that's where it gets very entertaining, right? And you talk about the, the, the neighbors and the, uh, the, the folks who, who can be very annoying because they're always trying to just bend to the group. Um, what they lack is essentially authenticity. You never really feel like you know that person versus someone who's very consistent. Even if you don't like them, you trust them. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make because uh, there are brands that I do business with all the time that I don't particularly like, but I trust them because they're consistent. Um, you know, I, I mean, wish that they would do something differently, or, or uh, uh, you know, or just just talk about themselves better, or something. But they are absolutely consistent and absolutely authentic with who they are and what they're about, and that's that's always paid off. I think that's a very important distinction to make uh, being liked versus being trusted. Um, so that's that's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, it, it is, and I and I think that's one of the things that people miss in the busyness of business. Is that really mm-hmm. important characteristic? And we get so companies get so focused on, you know, what is it we're selling? What is it we're marketing? You know, what you know, what who are the people we're hiring? That they forget the whole reason that they're there to start with.
0: Yeah, um, and I'm sure a lot of people again make the the wrong choices typically out of out of fear. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I because because they're e- they're looking for efficiency, I think and efficiency and innovation are two very very different things and i think especially as we as companies grow and get bigger all of the inefficiencies are squeezed out for the sake of of being profitable of keeping expenses down you know everything that comes with efficiency but there's no space to be inefficient and to try things you know to to do the what ifs to do the let's oh. pretend at whatever level, it doesn't have to be anything huge. It doesn't have to be innovation with a capital I all the time. The little bitty incremental innovations absolutely add up when you look at them across all employees, you know, over long periods of time.
0: It's really really cool. So um, you know, I, I did have a couple of questions uh, that I that I I had sent you ahead of time that I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, one of them being. What is what is the the greatest like world changing work that you're seeing happening?
1: You know, um, I think the work that I've seen that has made the greatest difference in in this last year is some of the things that Microsoft has been doing with Microsoft Teams. I mean, I think for so many years it was um, Slack had just an amazing crown and this icon of of team collaboration and and how people interact. But I think there's been a lot of things that Microsoft has done in the last couple of years, You know, especially when we talk about facilitating conversations and, and bringing people together as teams and and how you keep people connected. And even the, the idea of removing friction at every point that you can to make a process easy. I think what Microsoft has mm-hmm. done with Teams these last couple of years really has been um, you know world class type of of rethinking, what the whole process of of collaboration can look like.
0: I, I would agree with that. I mean we've we've uh, used it at Godfrey. One of the the things that I found is that like we have uh, we have project management software and that kind of thing, but then we also have this sort of collaboration tool that we just naturally use for having those real-time chats. Uh, we might do a phone call over it or something like that. We use it to throw files back and forth. Um, And what I find is that it ends up being, because of the the frictionless nature of it, it it kind of becomes a magnetic. We have to remind ourselves to actually go fill in the the project management stuff, like in the the, single source of truth that we have. (laughs) Uh, Because in those those collaboration spaces, it's just so easy to just sort of keep, keep cranking. Um, you know, and yeah. so, yeah, I, friction friction is, is I think, a key point
1: there. Yeah, I, I think it is. And I think that they've just done an amazing job of being very, um, of seeing an incredible opportunity. And who knew what a great opportunity it was, you know, when I think they started to do a lot of these different, different um, integrations in about 2019. And, you know, lo and behold, here comes 2020 to pull the rug out from underneath everyone. And it was just they they were able to see an opportunity that turned into a tremendous opportunity to solve problems that they didn't even know were going to exist. But I think that's really the beauty of, of what they've done is that they started to rethink what team collaboration could look like. And it worked out so well for so many people this last year.
0: I think this last year, you know, uh, for all of the difficulties and all of the frustrations and, and all of the the overall tragedy of it. Um, you know, there's a lot of heavy stuff there, but I've also been amazed at the way people have been resourceful. Mm -hmm. Um, innovation comes into that, right. We needed to, to do it, but, uh, the technology, so much of it was stuff that we already had this past year for me, uh, on a broad scale, was really about adoption of technology and people getting comfortable with things years more quickly than they probably would have otherwise.
1: Oh, absolutely! And and I know a year ago I saw companies who had been struggling with digital transformation and, and making it a priority for five years, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden in five weeks they got stuff done. You know, <laughs> so it's it's that sense, sense of urgency, and I think that's what's so exciting about what we're seeing now and, and going forward is that everybody knows whatever happens next is going to be different. So there's no better time than right now to really take advantage of change, of, of doing something different, of, of innovating, of, of rethinking the work that you're doing, because we all know that, that that page, that book, that you know, huge volume of expectations of business and how we interact, doesn't apply anymore. And we have this blank slate now. And I don't know, you as a creative person, you may have the same sense that I have. Like, I love opening a new notebook and getting my pen out and drawing those first lines and and imagining what things are going to look like and, and what could be, you know, the, the what ifs and the let's pretend. And I think we're at that tipping point yeah. right now in business with being able to do the exact same thing. But the thing that's that's to our benefit right now is that everybody expects it to look different. So that's our greatest opportunity is, is to design it in a way that is the most beneficial, the most helpful, the most valuable to everyone involved.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like because everybody's expecting things to be different, um, you know, we were, we were just talking about hybrid events, uh, virtual versus in person. And what's, what's the, the kind of middle ground going to be there? Um, I feel like because everybody's expecting things to change, the, the risk that you're getting into with any kind of innovation right now is probably the lowest it's ever been. People are going to be more, um, they're going to be more agreeable. They're going to be more forgiving. They're going to be more willing to come along for the ride because we've just gotten used to doing that. It's like, uh, it's like in in terms of uh, adopting new technology or getting comfortable with it, uh, it's like 2020 was a swim coach and said, Go stand by the deep end and close your eyes. I'll be there in a minute. You know, <laughs> <gonna> <laughs> that's right. um, pretty much. It's, it's, uh, and the wa- the water was cold, but you can get used to it. Right. Yeah. So tough <laughs> it um, up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stop crying. Why are you crying? You're just crying and swimming. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, that's
1: fantastic. <laughs>
0: You found a way to work a Tom Hanks quote again. (laughs) Um, So uh, second question, what ideas um, other than 2020 as swim coach, what ideas are most exciting to you right now? I,
1: um, I think I'm going to go back to the idea of the blank slate truly because it's a blank slate for everybody. You know, there's, there's been companies who have absolutely thrived in the last year or industries. There's been others that have struggled, but I think, the greatest um the thing that excites me the most is there is no standard playbook anymore and there is going yeah. to be a, a lot of redesigning rethinking um everybody's expectations are different and, and a lot of them aren't even set so i think that's what's most exciting is that w- we don't know what things are going to look like in five five years you know five months much less five years but this yeah. truly is the time that we have to create and, and design business to look at, look however we want it to look.
0: That's, that's absolutely true. And I think about, I think about what comes out of stuff like this. Um, you know, my, my kids have grown up in a world where we have tons of cool food trucks in our town. And I didn't grow up with anything like that. And I have to remind them that uh, during the, the economic downturn uh, in like 2008, 2009, it was, it was the fact that that came at a time when we all were starting to get smartphones, Twitter was was becoming a big thing, and then we had this downturn where somebody, somebody can't keep a restaurant open or is wanting to open one and has to come up with a more cost-effective way, they went to food trucks, and you can instantly connect with your customer base, let them know where you're gonna be on Thursday for lunch, um, and it just sort of created this revolution and this new way to get this like mobile, like culinary, uh, you know, idea out there. Uh, and, and to my kids, it's just like the norm. They're, they're just used to seeing food trucks around and, uh, and it's like your favorite restaurant you have to go hunt for it. You know, yeah. uh, it's, it's a really fascinating seeing the way that those trends, uh, evolved from those times and being able to, to sort of go back to it, uh, you know, kind of, kind of reverse engineer it and do that, 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 that memory, of uh, why, why did that happen? Um, I think it's is really fascinating in, in terms of just understanding how markets work.
1: Oh, you know, absolutely. And it's it's such a good point because that time that 2008, 9, 10 with the housing bubble and financial crisis was an incredibly innovative time. The same thing with the dot-com bubble in, in 2000, 2001, around then. You can mm-hmm. go back through all of these really hard economic times and Um, times of upheaval and, and it's, they're amazing sources of incredible innovation. And, and I think that's, what's so exciting because when times are good, nobody wants to rock the boat. Like let's not mess with a good thing. Like nobody wants to be that person to put their career on the line then. And so, you know, now's, now's that time to take advantage of all of it.
0: I I think that that's great because uh, you know from what I'm seeing in this book, you've essentially put together a playbook on how to rise to the occasion with that sort of thing, and that's what excites me so much. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those words I've gone through it. I I instantly I'm like I, I want to read this again. Uh, I want to talk to people about this. It, it's it's got I mean page after page. I just saw a ton of. Really, sort of sticky ideas and, uh, and really compelling material there for how to respond to times of uh, to times where innovation is needed. Um, you know, be that a challenge within a company because uh, companies have ups and downs, or a challenge that's more on that global level, where it's that shared experience that we can all relate to. Um, I, I, I honestly think it's an invaluable resource, and, and so you know, thank you for writing it.
1: Uh, Thank you. And and my hope with the book is that it would be something that if somebody was told, like, go innovate, that they literally could take this book and step by step understand every detail of not only what to do and how to do it, but why to start thinking about it differently to, to rethink innovation and the world that opens up when you start thinking about it a lot differently.
0: Yeah. Um, last question. If you could have one superpower, what would it be?
1: Oh, you know, I think my superpower has always been that I wanted to move things with my mind. Yes. And I think this is uh, <laughs> nice. this is particularly uh, something that I wished when our kids were younger and they were misbehaving and I was on the other side of the room from them. <laughs> it's more like I could just get a whole lot more done (laughs) in a shorter amount of time with maybe uh, less physical exertion for me. But that's always been one of my superpower wishes is to, is to be able to move things with my mind.
0: (laughs) That's, that's a good one. And I think it, uh, I I think not enough people choose that, you know, you're always looking at flight speed or invisibility, maybe time travel. Uh, Yours is, yours is much more practical on on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it works I for, for big crises, like when King Kong and Godzilla meet and there's things that I would mm-hmm. like to move out of the way or just day-to-day things, you know, it's, it goes up and down the range of necessity, Scott.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I, I would, um, I, that makes a ton of sense to me You know, <laughs> talking about, uh, uh, taking all your possessions with you and having them only weigh 27 pounds, uh, everyday life for the rest of us in a, in a typical housing environment, uh, there's there's a lot more to lift and a lot more to carry. <laughs>
1: That's so, right. <laughs> I think just all the stuff on top of my desk every day weighs more than 27 pounds anymore. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. I, I really appreciate that. It's been a joy to talk with you. Um, this book, you said it's going to be out in late June.
1: Yeah, June 29th, but you can pre-order now, which I encourage great. you to do. <laughs>
0: Very good. And uh, and just all the typical places people could find books, I would assume, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, just any place where all great books are sold.
0: Wonderful. Carla, thank you so much. It's been a
1: pleasure. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm delighted to be here. And I love this conversation.
0: Marketing to Complex Industries has been presented by Godfrey, a B2B marketing agency for industries like yours. Godfrey is built for technical products, discerning buyers, and intricate buying cycles. For more information, visit us at godfrey.com.